Welcome to FEPS Talks, the podcast series at the Foundation for European Progressive Studies. Find out more about us on feps-europe.eu. Welcome to this new episode of FEPS Talks. I'm David Rinaldi, Director of Studies and Policies at the Foundation of European Progressive Studies, and I'm thrilled to welcome for this episode Professor Danny Dorling, Professor of Geography at the University of Oxford and authors of an impressive numbers of outstanding books on uh, inequality, uh, among which uh, Inequality in the 1%, Peak Inequality, The Human Atlas of Europe, A Continent United in Diversity, and uh, many others. Professor Dolling, we are extremely grateful to welcome you here. Thanks for uh, contributing to this uh, sharing of knowledge. Uh, thanks ever so much for having me. One of the the opportunity actually to uh, welcome you today is also given from a publication that FAPS is launching uh, these days together with TASC, Fondazione Alternativas, Compass UK and Arena Idea. We have been working with several members and other foundations on a weird research question. Who are the top uh, 10% income earners in Europe with some case studies. You have been kind enough to write for us a preface because these are, are, are your topic. Who are these 10% of the richest in Europe? This report is a fascinating report. The quantitative work which has done it is, is absolutely excellent because it is often quite difficult uh, to compare different countries. They have different tax systems, uh, sometimes different currencies and so on to work out what is the level of inequality in each country, which country has more inequality than, than others and so on. And also often there's a tendency... People researching in every country, particularly social scientists, want to say, look how bad inequality is in my country. But of course, in some, it has to be lower than, than others. The, the simple answer to who is the best of 10% is it tends to be people like you and me. I mean, it tends to be people who get to talk on podcasts. It tends to be people who have more power. And often we do not think we are in that group because in all societies, people tend not to mix that much. So it's very easy, a, a large number, if not the majority, of people in the top 10% don't think they're in it, think that they're on an, quite an average income. Uh, and there are these people who get much more than them. And the shock is when you actually realise that if you have a salary that is 50% uh, above the average salary in your country, you might well be in the top 10%. I, I'm happy to tell you where I am in the UK. I'm between the top 2 and 3%. Uh, so I'm really well paid. But I actually haven't told you anything because all university professors in the UK are paid between the top 3% and the top 2%. There's an enormous amount of expansion. And almost all of us moan and complain about these people in the 1% who get so much more than us. Uh, so, so there are all kind of issues about inequality. Uh, and it's important to understand that people in the top 10%, even near the top of that, like me, they're not happy. They don't think they have enough money. It's a, it's a bizarre situation. I have to confess that I checked my level with respect to Belgium. I'm in the top 9% of income earners, uh, okay. according to the last statistics. Yes. Indeed, I can confirm, as the study says, it doesn't feel so. But we have to stress that this it does not correlate necessarily to with, with wealth, correct? So yes. that's another, another uh, bit of inequality that perhaps perhaps needs to be addressed. But this clarifies that it's also people like me and you, perhaps, that constitute the difficult part of uh, embarking a change. Yeah. So what 
does this 10%, uh, people that are teachers, public servants, medical doctors, architects, writers, want? And why it is still impossible to have a majority in the political spectrum that can deliver a change to, towards a more equal society? Yeah, it's fascinating. So in the UK, the top 10% are taking about 40% of all income, leaving only 60% to the other 9 out of 10 people around us. It's incredibly wasteful. It's really, really expensive to give the top 10%, 40% of all income. Why can't you simply reduce it? <laughs> um, well, the answer you'll get, uh, probably you're similar to me, but the, the first answer you get is housing. It'll be, but if I wasn't paid this, I couldn't possibly live in the house I live in. And the house, and you'll say the next thing, they said the house is nothing extravagant about the house. It's just very expensive. The rent's very expensive, or to buy the house or the flat is very expensive. So the problem is that high inequality then creates further costs, such as driving up the cost of housing, which then makes people think they have to be paid this much. And what people find very hard to realise is that if we were to reduce inequality, and particularly do it in a really clever way, so that the people who are a bit better off than us saw slightly larger falls in their income than us, and we saw slightly larger falls in our income than people below us, everybody's lives in terms of costs for things like housing would get better. Now, you might think, well, how on earth could you do that? How could you really carefully uh, reduce incomes in such a way that it happened fairly? Uh, and there is a mechanism, it's called tax. Uh, and anything else doesn't really work. You can't, you know, I could voluntarily decide to tell my university, oh, I only want you to pay me half as much and I will go and live 50 miles away and I'll come in sometimes, <laughs> you know. You can't individually reduce income inequalities. It doesn't work. But you can as an entire country and interestingly, of course, for Europe. And the question is, what does what does a body like the EU think about this? Because at the moment, it's at the nation state level that we look at these issues and so some countries in europe are very equal the most equal in the world and possibly the most equal there have ever been are currently countries in the eu uh, and some countries in europe are very unequal because it's seen as a kind of national decision what level of inequality you're willing to live with the neoliberal uh, narrative somehow tried to hint at the fact that a certain level of economic inequality is necessary for economic development. Yes. I think you wrote on this on your essay on do we need economic inequality, something like in this neoliberal frame of uh, linked, if you want, to the American dream, you need uh, strong even economic uh, inequalities to reward people for their hard work, to address meritocracy. So you work harder, you're smarter, and you, you have the right to become Mm -hmm. So what are your counter-arguments to this? And my question would be also, should we accept just lower economic inequalities, but some of them are somehow needed? Or it is the entire system and logic that is uh, full of flaws and we have to restart thinking in a completely different manner? Yeah, that's a brilliant question. There's a constant refrain over the last two centuries of people defending inequality, saying it's it's very good. Normally, people who are very rich try to explain why it's a good thing that they're very rich. But also people who are paid by very rich people, think tanks funded by the very rich, um, whose job is to say things that the people funding them like to hear. But there also are a small number of people who actually believe this. 
that inequality is good. My, I've come to the belief that they're genuine, these people who believe it, and they are driven by greed and selfishness and they think everybody else is like them now the problem with with their belief is the evidence the problem is that in these most equal countries in europe which are the nordic countries denmark uh, and so on to an extent germany people are quite productive in fact, in fact they're more productive than in the most unequal countries so the argument that you need inequality to reward effort sounds plausible until you look at look at the evidence the interesting, really interesting question is, at what level of greater equality might things start to go wrong? But as yet, we've got nowhere near that level to actually uh, locate it. The most equitable countries in Europe are the most productive at the moment. People often then go and cite communism. You know, they say, oh, equality is communism, uh, without ever looking at communist societies, say China is the obvious one, which are highly unequal. China has an income inequality difference, which is as big as the United States, bigger than anywhere in Europe. So citing communism as, as equality is just silly, you know, uh, and so that it's a straw person. They're creating this kind of made up society where people are equal and don't do very much. Whereas in the real world, when we actually look at societies where there is equality, greater equality, people, people are happier. How does this carry on getting sustained on and on and on? There was an interesting situation in the British government at the start of this year when they were trying to decide whether to lock down or not with the pandemic. And they kept on delaying lockdown because they said, oh, people just won't do it. They won't behave. We must wait until it's really serious before we lock down. And of course, as soon as they locked down, everybody behaved. In fact, they behaved so well, they can't get them to go back to work. And it turns out that most people are not like conservative politicians. Conservative politicians are selfish. They would break the rules. They would hate anything that meant that they have to care about other people. And, and that's why they delayed lockdown, because they thought that other people were like them. And now most people are not incredibly selfish, incredibly greedy. Most people are not driven by how much money can I make? Most people don't say, I won't go and help other people unless you double or triple my salary. Uh, the last thing I should say, even in the Netherlands, uh, the head of Shell, oh, this must be two or three decades ago in the Netherlands, said, if you paid me half as much, I'd still go to work and do my job. And if you paid me twice as much, I wouldn't work any harder. And that's from 30 years ago. That's indeed very true. But this, my question therefore remains, if even people like me and you in the top 10%, we are looking for a fairer society, free from different types of inequalities. Why we can't come up with a political majority? So what are the hurdles, the difficulty in, in transforming these feelings that even in, the, in some parts of the richest uh, electorate are present? What prevent our governments and our uh, somehow uh, parliamentary assembly to become you know, those that are championing equality? Yeah, it's a brilliant question. Uh, and there are many reasons that have been identified. One is that inequality is a complex uh, concept. You're talking about a difference between numbers. So you're actually asking people to think about a gap. Uh, and it's different from saying, talking about child poverty, which is a single thing, a total number of children People don't believe children should have to live in poverty. It's much simpler to say, let's abolish child poverty than it is to say, let's reduce inequality. The problem is that reducing inequality is the way to actually reduce child uh, poverty. Another problem is that most people do not understand the extent of inequality. They think it's much less than it is. They don't realise just how much a small group of people are, are getting, so they don't see how much of a problem it is. There's also the problem that people are told that it's fair, it's okay. When the salaries of people working in the BBC are released, 
the fact that one of the presenters on a radio show gets 1.4 million a year is justified because she's a woman. Also, that's greater equality then between women and men. <laughs> not, not why are we paying from a public service 1.4 million pounds a year? But lastly, I think most importantly, people are deliberately distracted by politicians and they're told that there's another reason that their lives are difficult that has nothing to do with inequality. So when the bottom 90% of society are having to live on just 60% of all income and are finding it hard to house themselves or the schools that their children go to are crowded or they can't get a job, instead of being told this is what happens when you become more unequal, it wasn't like this when we were more equal, they're told, oh, it's the immigrants. It's the immigrants that are taking the houses away from you. It's the immigrants who are taking the jobs. The immigrants are in the good schools, so that's why your children can't be there. So there's this incredible effort at distracting people from equality and inequality onto another issue, uh, of which, at least in my country, the strongest form of distraction has always been immigration. And the lower and lower the birth rate in Europe goes, the more and more we need people to come in. You know, who on earth is going to help look after me in my old age? The more this rhetoric of it's the immigrants causing all the problems, it has nothing to do with inequality. And I'm afraid that's a very, very powerful message. So now that you have started uh, talking about the role of the governments and the public sector, I think you mentioned before uh, taxation as a necessary way in which some redistribution uh, from the top level to, to the lower ones has to happen. But what are the means that have proven successful in the near past? And I'm thinking particularly about uh, pre-redistribution and public services. Um, oh, there's all kinds of ways. I mean, what we forget is over the course of the last 100 years, almost exactly 100 years, in most decades, we've been successful. Inequality peaked in almost every country in Europe around the time of the First World War. That was a time when people everywhere in Europe had servants, the rich, when the rich had big houses and so on. And in almost every European country, for decade after decade, for a majority of the last 100 years, economic inequality rose. It's only been since the 1980s that we've seen this increase in inequality. Often people didn't notice what was successful. Pre-distribution is a complicated word. It just means not paying people at the top more and increasing the salaries at the bottom when, say, inflation rises so that the gap between the rich and poor falls. And this is what occurred in the 1920s, 30s, 40s and 50s. Salaries at the top didn't rise. Salaries at the bottom did rise and, and the gap fell. The other uh, way you mentioned it is services. So providing a health service uh, that is free at the point of need is worth about €6,000 a year. You're giving everybody €6,000 a year of service, which they don't want to use. The lovely thing about how, you know, you, you really, really don't want to be ill. But if you are ill, in effect, well, the government will give you much more than €6,000. Uh, euros a year. So these kind of services, uh, decent education available to all, and things like you know a meal for free at, at school, which is good. They, these are all forms of increased equality, and all of them can be taken away. So in my country, 7% of children have an education where two to three to four, sometimes six times as much is spent on those children. And the other 93% of children have less and less spent on them because we divide our education between private and public. You can take away benefits like unemployment benefits. They used to be twice as big in Britain than they are now. Uh, so there's all kinds of ways. Oh, and you can take away universities. Um, you, you might not think so, but again, what my country is really good at, uh, England in particular, is showing you what happens if you become really unequal. And in case you don't imagine how much you could do it. Uh, so we have privatised universities. 
they cost 10 or 11,000 euros a year to go to. More, by the way, now, if you come from the mainland of Europe. Mm. Um, don't, don't underestimate. Once you allow inequality to rise, the people who like inequality keep on trying to find new ways to increase it even more. You know? And then eventually, when you're worrying about immigrants, you start worrying about other Europeans as immigrants, you know, and you say that they can't come either. And you, you, a new bizarre situation has to occur every year. You can't keep on staking up inequality without coming up with even more, I must say, slightly mad ideas about why it's okay to be this unequal. I think yeah, the, the consequences that you described um, are visible to everybody, as well as the disaffection of European people to politics and mm. uh, their trust to public institutions and yeah. to uh, established parties as well. So I think that that is a, that is a big consequence of, of increasing uh, inequalities. Yes, but yes, um, but don't but don't get depressed about it. In um, you can produce quite a nice strong correlation between turnout in elections and equality. People are certainly across Europe, but even stronger if you include the United States as well, where turnout is much lower and of course inequality is higher. In the most unequal states of the USA, like Alabama and Mississippi. People are least likely to vote. In the most equitable parts of Europe, people are most likely to vote. So if you're interested in democracy, you need greater economic inequality. Um, That's indeed the message I like. <laughs> we will quote you on that. Uh, I actually have my last question, question to you, Professor Dorling, which uh, actually is my second last because then I have a bonus question. Okay. Last question to go through your uh, book on the Human Atlas of Europe, uh, A Continent United in Diversity. That's the title of the, of the atlas that you put forward. Because uh, we, what we discussed so far is mostly inequalities within a country but there are also large inequalities across uh, countries, mm. and particularly for a continent and for a political project like Europe that would like to unite people, uh, inequality has an, an additional uh, degree of, uh, of problem when it comes to identify policies that are good for everybody. Mm. So what is actually your human atlas? How are we, how are we different uh, ac- across Europe? What came uh, to you as uh, striking? Uh, when we drew this, I should say that uh, three of us made this. Uh, the main author was uh, Demetrius Ballas, who grew up in Greece, who studied in England, and who now lives in Groningen in the Netherlands. Uh, and the maps in the Human Atlas of Europe uh, were drawn by Ben Hennig, who was born in Switzerland, but is German and now works at the University in Iceland. Um, and that kind of illustrates part of the... <laughs> the European project has been very good for the top 10%. I'll put it that way. It's the top 10% who have moved between European countries like my colleagues have and enjoyed that. Uh, People elsewhere in the income distribution, it has not so obviously benefited them. It has benefited them, but not in a way that they can personally see in their lives. They haven't been born in one country, studied in another, worked in another, had this incredibly rich experience as much as better off people have done, particularly under European educational, you know, Erasmus, various schemes that have helped so we produced the atlas because we were interested in this what we saw was that generally over time in some ways europe has become more equal but particularly in the last 10 years particularly with the financial crisis the entire periphery in the south and west did bad and the east so from greece to italy to portugal to spain to the united kingdom to iceland the banking crash 
was especially bad uh, for the periphery uh, of Europe. And these these trends wax and wane, and and they they change they change o- over time. One interesting thing over the course, it's actually our second European atlas, is watching Europe grow up in a way uh, from. The beginnings of the financial crisis over 10 years ago, when there was talk about reckless behaviour in the South and so on, and a bit of puritanical talk from the north of Europe, uh, to a much deeper understanding, I think, nowadays compared to then. And I have to say again, my great pride in Britain. The UK trying to leave the EU has really demonstrated just how valuable the EU is and and the value of of getting on with each other and working in cooperation. Uh, And it's a pity it was my country, uh, but I'm glad it wasn't a smaller one. Because people wouldn't understand without somewhere trying to actually leave and not cooperate. You can't see why cooperation is so incredibly valuable. Great. Thanks a lot for this. As I promised, my bonus question to you, that is actually not a question, but a request for a comment on UK politics. (laughs) Free free flow to you. Okay, I've given you some. Oh, at the moment, it is uh, is bizarre. Um, One of the books I I wrote recently is, is... called Royal Britannia with my colleague Sally Tomlinson um, about UK politics and and Brexit and we updated it recently it was published uh, second edition this June they are extreme Uh, so to to try to to summarize what's happened uh, we had an extreme uh, government four years ago Uh, in 2014 before that our Conservative Party was allied in the European Parliament with Alternative for Deutschland so people may not be aware that Britain was actually uh, the majority of our MEPs and the majority of our MPs were to the far right, to the right of Conservatives. That was under David Cameron. He was then forced out and somebody further to the right to him, uh, Theresa May came to power and her ministers, uh, and then they were forced out. And now we have an extreme right of an extreme right party in charge who have never done anything constructive in their lives. They've never made anything. All they've ever done is tear things apart and tear them down. Now their problem is they're in charge. And because they have no experience of doing anything positive, they don't know how to, they can't. And they are absolutely floundering. Uh, They're being taken apart in the next few weeks because having said that we will have a world-beating test system better than every other country. And these are people who believe in the British Empire, so everything has to be better than every other country. Having said they'll have something better than every country, it turns out we now have the worst track and trace system in Europe. And they're about to take us out of the European Union and supposedly negotiate when they cannot even run a basic track and trace system. Uh, in one way, it's deeply, deeply sad. Uh, on the other way, as I, as I said earlier, I'm kind of grateful that this hasn't happened yet to a poorer, smaller European country. Uh, I think, you know, it was going to happen probably to somewhere. The British have got a lot of growing up to do. Uh, They need to realise that they're not superior and they need to understand just how dangerous it is to elect the equivalent of the AFD, Alternative for Deutschland, as your main national party in power. If you do things like that, if you elect the far right to power, this is what you actually get. Yeah, we hope that no other country in Europe will elect far-right parties. Uh, We thank you a lot for today's contribution to the FAPS talks. Uh, It was enriching. Thanks a lot. Thanks as well for your contribution to the FAPS 
task Fondazione Alternativas, Compass and Arena the report on inequality and the top 10% in Europe. We are glad that we will be able to host you on September 23rd for the launch of the publication and we invite all those that like this topic to click on the report and be present at the event. Thanks a lot, Professor Don. Thanks ever so much for having me. Thank you for your attention. If you found our conversation interesting, do not hesitate to share it on social media with the hashtag FEPSTools. More is yet to come. Stay tuned.